Classics, a podcast from Kane Academy. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, we explore one of the most popular books in American secondary education, F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel, The Great Gatsby. Joining me for the interview is Jeanette DeSell Zorneman, Director of Instruction and a Master Teacher here at Kane Academy. Jeanette's interpretation of Gatsby is fresh and intriguing. It really stands out from the typical approach and holds out some compelling reasons to study the book and equally compelling ways to understand it. Now, as you listen to the interview, please take note that we're going to cover quite a bit of the novel, including the ending. So this is my official spoiler alert. I hope you enjoy this probing discussion of The Great Gatsby. Good afternoon. It's great to be here on this beautiful October afternoon here in Virginia. And you and I get to talk about another great book. For your latest project, you have chosen one of the most popular novels in America for high school readers, The Great Gatsby, which, you know, I think the overwhelming majority of Americans who graduate from high school English classes end up reading. I understand that the book sells about 500,000 copies a year, and Scribner says it sold 25 million copies worldwide since its publication in 1925. So, what is The Great Gatsby about? The, you know, those numbers that you just shared are, are kind of amazing. Fitzgerald died believing that he had failed because when he published it the first time, it sold just about 22,000 copies. And he couldn't even find a copy in a bookstore towards the end of his life. So it's an amazing turnaround that he ended up becoming so well-read today. The Great Gatsby, what is it about? The Great Gatsby is a sad story. It's a, about a poor farmer's son named James Gatz, who sets out to construct a beautiful life for himself, to recreate himself in an image from his own imagination. Or, as the narrator Nick Carraway says, from a platonic conception of himself. And the depth of the boy's poverty is not clear to the reader until the final chapter when we meet his father at the funeral and we learn more about the young James. We learn, for instance, that James had prescribed for himself a schedule of self-improvement and resolutions uh, which he had written by hand on the flyleaf of his childhood copy of Hopalong Cassidy. This is, for me, it was a very stirring revelation. This young boy, let me read you some of these resolutions he's made. And when he wrote that in his copy of Hopalong Cassidy, about how old was he? He might have been 16, 14, maybe 14, I'm not sure. So here we go. He's going to um, rise from bed at 6 a.m., He's going to do dumbbell exercises and wall scaling for 15 minutes between 6.15 and 6.30. He's going to study electricity for se- from 7.15 to 8.15. <laughs> he's going to work from 8.30 to 4.30. That dominates his day. And then he's going to do some sports for about a half an hour in the afternoon. He's going to practice elocution, poise, and how to attain it from 5 to 6. And then he's going to study needed inventions from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. 
And then he has these resolves, these general resolves. No wasting time at shafters. No more smoking or chewing. Taking a bath every other day. Reading one improving book or magazine per week. Save $5 and it crosses out and he puts $3 instead per week and be better to parents. And those resolutions are so dear and sweet. It reminds me of uh, George Washington laboriously copying out the rules of civility when he was a young boy. It's a a man with a plan. Yes. At any rate, to pursue his goals, he changes his name to Jay Gatsby. And and I'm going to compress the story somewhat here. He meets and courts a wealthy socialite named Daisy Fay, but as he goes off to war, he loses her to a very wealthy competitor named Tom Buchanan. He comes back to America after the war and is very brokenhearted that he lost her, and he decides to follow her out to Long Island, where she now lives, and he accumulates a massive fortune in bootlegging. The story uh, occurs or is set in 1922, so that's shortly after the passage of Prohibition. He purchases a mansion across the bay from the Buchanan home, and he prepares to win Daisy back. And his plan, in a nutshell, is to turn the clock backwards. He wants to recapture the past as if the intervening years had never happened. And this, of course, is impossible. Daisy not only has a very powerful, wealthy, and often violent husband, she also has a young daughter, and she can't, in all honesty, comply with Jay's insistent demand that she say that she never loved anybody except him. Hmm. To paraphrase Nick Carraway, the, um, the narrator, Jay has gone about enchanting his world. He's been transforming ordinary artifacts into sacred objects. There's this green light that sits at the edge of Daisy's dock, and that green light comes to represent uh, all of Jay's great longing for her and for what she represents. So he has this idea of what he wants to be and what he wants his life to look like. And Daisy represents in some foundational way that life. And if he can't reclaim her, he can't reclaim this vision he has of himself. As it is in the end, his aspirations are ultimately thwarted, partly due to his inability to adapt to the conditions, that, the real conditions on the ground, and also partly due to the aggressive resistance of the world, which is epitomized in the character of Tom Buchanan. I think of Gatsby as genetically akin to Emma Bovary and Don Quixote, both who both characters were equally engaged in trying to beautify and willfully enchant their own ordinary lives. And their lives were drab and dull and unheroic, and they both sought to make heroes of themselves, and they too were thwarted by a kind of forcible disenchantment that the world worked on their dreams. But unlike Bovary and Quixote, Gatsby does in fact, I would argue, achieve a kind of heroism, which is both memorable and beautiful. Now that whole story that I just told you is told in reverse 
Fitzgerald has chosen to keep his identity mysterious until the very end, which is a clever piece of artifice. Just one follow-up question regarding his request of Daisy that she would state unequivocally that you know she never loved anyone else, and she can't do that, you say, is that because she did love someone else or because it's just socially uh, too difficult to say that given that she's married, that she has a child? It's hard to say. I, she says to him in a moment of kind of unique transparency that she did love Tom. And she did love Gatsby. So I think, and I felt like she was speaking the truth when she said that. So Jay's insistence that she not have, you know, that she that she claimed that she had never loved anybody but him is is unrealistic. As uh, teachers are guiding their students through this book, is there anything? Um, well, let me ask you this: Do you, do you think this is an? Uh, does a teacher face any particular challenges as as uh, as uh, the students are preparing to, to tackle the book? I do. I I think one of the first great challenges is that the Great Gatsby feels a little bit like a cream puff on a first encounter. It's very light. It's less than two hundred pages, and it 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 could be read in a single night. It's not difficult to read. The vocabulary is common, and the symbolism is fairly forthright and uncomplicated. The dialogue is often more like patter. Uh, And then there's this great mystery that sits in the center of the story, as I said just a minute ago, that keeps the reader turning the pages. And I think all of that, in a kind of unique way, conspires to lead a first-time reader to conclude that the book is a bit lightweight. Mm. But after a second reading, it takes on a bit more weight. T.S. Eliot read it and then reread it three times and then wrote this very enthusiastic letter to Fitzgerald saying that the book he thought was the first step forward in American fiction since Henry James. I think that kind of uh, compliment is uh, an encouragement for us to slow down and, and read it again. Wow, that's that's a pretty significant endorsement from one of the 20th century's and, biggest and then, heavyweight writers. Yes, and then he solicits some more material from Fitzgerald for his magazine. Yeah, and when you think about T.S. Eliot as being one of the, the, the great practitioners of the new criticism, mm-hmm. and that, that is a serious school mm-hmm. of thought yeah. endorsing the book. I think another challenge, you asked about challenges, I think another challenge in teaching this course or this book is that... Uh, there are a number of film adaptations out there, most recently Baz Luhrmann's uh, flamboyant version in uh, 2013, and a lot of students may already have seen, especially that latter adaptation, and I think that can color their reading of the novel and short-circuit the imaginative experience. So I think teachers are going to have to encourage students to put all that away and start fresh as they read the book. I think another big challenge that I've noticed from readers is that they just don't like the characters all that much and they don't tend to sympathize with them and part of this is a result of Fitzgerald's lack of development of some of the characters for instance his portrait of Daisy Buchanan borders on a paper doll portrait Hmm. apart from her siren voice it's hard to see what Jay or anybody else sees in her the reader doesn't have 
much access to her thoughts and her motivations. In chapter 5, for instance, at this incredibly poignant uh, moment in their loving reunion, she let me just read this passage to you. She gazes out the window at the parting clouds, and she whispers, Look at that. I'd like to just get one of those pink clouds and put you in it and push you around. That, um, that kind of fruity, shallow remark comes from Daisy frequently, and that irritates readers, especially young female readers. But it's important to bear in mind, I think, that the story isn't really about Daisy. It's about what Gadsby makes of Daisy in his own imagination and what she signifies uh, for him in his vision of his life. In some ways, we're witnessing Daisy from Gatsby's perspective. Sometimes Daisy feels more like a symbol to me than a human being. Mm-hmm. So when a teacher is asking questions about the text, of course we have to pay attention to the, the details that rest in what Daisy looks like and what she says, so some of the kind of more shallow elements that you point to, but... More importantly, we need to look at how Gatsby sees her, uh, what motivates him in his actions towards her. Yeah, well, and also what Nick sees in her. Nick is a helpful uh, voice in this. In um, Chapter 5, when Jay seems to have finally gained everything he had sought, Nick observes that Daisy has, uh, the way he puts it is, she's tumbled short of Jay's dreams. He just senses that, and that... um, that's because Jay's dreams have, he says, grown uh, too colossal that no woman, you know, he's, they're so colossal that no woman could ever measure up to that image. The green light as well at the, um, at the end of Daisy's Dock, that green light now is also disenchanted. It's just a green light, he says, like any other green light. The real, in other words, seems to fall short of the imagined. We get these little whiffs of what I'm going to call disenchantment, but I'm not sure Gatsby always detects them. Only later in Chapter 7, uh, we see Gatsby uh, momentarily glimpse and express a kind of brutal truth about Daisy when he says that her voice is full of money. That is a very, um, that's a very pointed uh, criticism, and it. It's, an, uh, it's what Nick was looking for and trying to name for a long time. Nick kept saying there was an inexhaustible charm that he felt in Daisy's presence, but he always struggled to name. And, he, and it, when Gatsby says those words, Nick, Nick says yes in his head. He says, yes, that's what this is. Having said all that, though, I do think that Fitzgerald makes some small gestures toward a deeper portrait of Daisy. We learn, for instance, that Daisy had almost run away and eloped with Gadsby, and her mother had intervened. We also learned that she had a hard time getting to the altar with Tom and uh, even kind of half-heartedly tried to call off the wedding. We also get the impression from her friend Jordan Baker's testimony that Daisy and Tom did genuinely seem to be in love, but that he began to almost immediately cheat on her, and I think that's kind of cut out the heart of the marriage. Daisy doesn't respect Tom, I think. You see this in the scenes where they're together. But the fact remains, we don't really know what Daisy thinks of Jay, and that sometimes irritates 
It irritates me as a reader. We don't have much access to their relationship. Fitzgerald tends to close the drapes. And I can't tell if that's purposeful or accidental on Fitzgerald's part, but it would certainly be an issue worth discussing with the students. Are you in uh, T.S. Eliot's camp in thinking that this is an important work? If not as a, a move forward in American literature, at least as a, you know, just taking it as an artwork, as a, as a work of fiction, do you think it's an important work? I do. My first reading of the text was pretty unenthusiastic until I got to that final chapter and discovered who Gatsby really was. That image of him as a boy writing out his plan for self-improvement so touched me. It just caught me off guard. And it it caused me to stop and wonder why I hadn't felt any sympathy for Gatsby prior to that moment. And I think it's because I didn't really know him. And I sensed that. I had something like a facsimile of a man, but not the man himself. And I guess that's the point. Gatsby has invented himself, and it's, it's hard to really know him. I think at one point Daisy says of him he's an adver- the advertisement of the man. Nick uh, says at one point that Gatsby has created the world of a 17-year-old imagination, and I think that's true, too. By contrast... The book opens up with Nick Carraway situating himself in a family with a father. And the father imparts advice to his son. And the story ends with Nick returning to his father's home. In other words, Nick has a defined place in the world with a family and a father. But Gatsby, on the other hand, seems to arise out of nowhere. He has no father. He has no mother. He has no family, no history that we know of. And in that regard, he does look like that platonic conception of himself that uh, Nick had mentioned. It's as if he was created out of nothing. But that last chapter introducing us to his father and to his history, his father's name is Henry, that last chapter gives us Gatsby's real name and his true origins, and suddenly, for the first time in the story, I felt I knew him rather than a performance of himself. And that's, I think that's a really important insight of the story. Human beings don't just emerge out of nothing or out of an idea. They have a past. They have a history that shapes them. And uh, James was 17, we find out, when he left home. He wasn't an orphan. He had a family who loved him. He had a father who journeyed all the way east to find his deceased son. And the father treasures and carries with him this beaten up copy of Jay's uh, Jay's copy of Hopalong Cassidy. And he has a photograph of the mansion that Jay had uh, lived in. We discovered that uh, Jay had bought his father a new house back in Minnesota and that he had even visited him recently, I think as recently as two years ago. And when Henry speaks about Jay, he speaks about him in the plural we when he says the, 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 the family, how broken the family was when Jay ran away. So suddenly the reader knows there's a history back there that's been hidden from us. And I think that's that's critical to the story. The East, in other words, where he's come to, kind of represents a selfish and atomized version of human beings. 
It's uh, somewhere characters run to to escape the past. This is true even for Daisy and Tom, who left Chicago, it turns out, uh, uh, for some scandalous reason. But human beings don't really thrive in that kind of environment of loose connections and strange anonymity. They become cruel and careless, like Daisy and Tom, or they get ruined, like Jay. When Jay is planning or when Nick is uh, planning Jay's funeral, he can't get any of Jay's associates to attend the funeral. None of them. None of his uh, f- so-called friends. Nobody who attended those parties every week. None of them come. And he has this really sad moment. Let me read this to you. He's, uh, he says of the... Um, He says, as they drew back the sheet and looked at Gatsby with unmoved eyes, his protest continued in my brain. Look here, old sport, you've got to get somebody for me. You've got to try hard. I can't go through this alone. So that was very, very beautiful. So it seems like if you, if the reader is having a difficult time sympathizing with Gadsby, here it is at the end of the novel that details about him kind of situate him in the world, make him more sympathetic. And then, you know, Nick's difficulty in getting people to come to the funeral, Nick's own reflections, deepens the reader's sympathy for Gadsby. Yeah. Is that a, is that a, a fair way to... to yeah, I, I think it's uh, definitely... I think, though, that Fitzgerald is reaching maybe for something a little bit bigger than just Jay's situation. You know, the, the um, Nick confesses to having this recurring dream. I think it's a recurring dream that has a kind of an El Greco coloration. And in the dream, four men are carrying a drunken woman on a stretcher, and her hand is decked with jewels, and it's dangling over the side of the stretcher, and the men are taking her somewhere, and they turn into the wrong house, and uh, the sense that Nick has of this dream is that no one knows the woman's name, and no one cares. I think those last four words are so striking, and no one cares. I think that goes to Nick's decision to leave this world that he's been living in, and that's a rebuke of that world, and he says um, in the opening passages of the book that he's about to, the story he's about to narrate, that he, he wants no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. He's, uh, he's done with this and he's going home. So whatever this world is here, where no one cares, is not, is not a world worthy of a human being. Mm. And Nick gets that. Nick gets that. Yeah. Now, it's hard to tell exactly. I'm not sure I've completely figured out Nick, but I know that he has gotten that part. He knows this yeah. is no good, yeah. and he goes home. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the geography of the story. Uh, I think that's, among other things in the novel, that's one of the things that sort of builds the world for the, for the students. I mean, most students will not have seen anything quite like this. So uh, can, you, can you lay out for us a little bit the, the ge- geography of the story? 
it, it is it is very important to reconstruct the geography of the space with the students, primarily because Fitzgerald uses the landmarks to signify certain elements of his story. It looks like he took what he knew of Long Island landscape and used it for his fictional purposes. Apparently he lived out there for a short time. But he's changed the names of some of the locations. West Egg is one of the primary geographic locations, and it's populated by the newly rich. So Jay Gadsby lives there and some of the more, some of the other uh, newly rich. And that's a promontory that juts off the island, uh, Long Island, into the sound. And then there's East Egg, which is populated by the moneyed families, old moneyed families, and that lies across the bay from West Egg. And it, too, juts off of Long Island into the sound. Most people think that West Egg is very likely Great Neck and that East Egg is likely Cow Neck. And that lies, East Egg lies across Manhasset Bay from, uh, from West Egg. Gatsby's purchased this ostentatious mansion on West Egg just across Manhasset Bay from Daisy's Mansion, which is on East Egg. Mm. And this way he, he can display his wealth to her and he can also gaze longingly at that green light. Does that mean that Tom Buchanan is of old wealth? Yes. He and Daisy do not work for their money, and they have inherited it. Uh, Of course, Jay has worked his way up to his money. There are two more important landmarks that Fitzgerald references. One is Manhattan, which is a playground for the rich. Tom houses his mistress there, and, of course, it's where Nick goes to work. Uh, Nick is um, in stocks and bonds, and uh, Jay journeys to the city to meet with these shady characters he carries on with. And then finally, there is the Valley of the Ashes, which lies between West Egg and Manhattan. And when the characters travel to the city, they have to pass through this thing called the Valley of the Ashes. The Valley of the Ashes is is, uh, some kind of a manufacturing dumping ground. It feels like a no-man's land. And those who don't participate in the wealth of West Egg or East Egg just uh, travel. Or, or those who don't participate in that kind of wealth have to live there, I guess. It, it reminds me a little bit of the dust heap in um, Dickens's Our Mutual Friend. Do you remember the dust heap? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So we get this stark contrast between the lives of those who inhabit that wasteland and then those who just merely pass through it. And this is incidentally where that great iconic billboard of uh, Dr. Eckelberg's eyes is displayed. And it's where Tom's mistress Myrtle lives with her husband and then is finally killed. One of the inhabitants of the valley, Myrtle's husband at the end, in a moment of mad grief, calls these eyes the eyes of God. And uh, I think that points to an important aspect of Fitzgerald. The, the way Fitzgerald has created this world, it really is a world scrubbed of gods. There don't appear to be any sort of... Um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of transcendent order to which they are uh, accountable. The murderer escapes punishment. The victims receive no justice, and the criminals seem to thrive. And there's this sensation of lawlessness that permeates the world. Gatsby, of course, makes his fortune in illegal activities as to his associates. And uh, yeah, I think that sense of lawlessness is in part fueled by the setting that Fitzgerald has uh, placed his story in. 
And the, the story also takes place, as you said, uh, after World War One, but it's um, it's it's the twenties, right? Yeah, it's nineteen twenties America, which we know was a time of uh, social unrest, and it follows the incredibly senseless carnage of World War One. The um, two characters, at least that we know of, Jay. And Nick had both fought in World War One, but significantly not Tom Buchanan. And it takes place during the sugar high stock market and uh, sudden growth in consumer wealth. Fitzgerald, of course, doesn't know this yet when he's writing the book, but we know in retrospect that this is just years before the stock market crash and the Great Depression that followed. So that certainly uh, helps us understand our it helps us understand that world in, in, in light of that. It's a, it's a strange period of license and contradiction. The prohibition has just been passed, and yet alcohol consumption seems on the rise. Uh, women have experienced a newfound freedom, partly from entering the workforce when the men were at war, and they've cut their hair. In some cases, they've bobbed it and... Uh, They've removed some of the restraints in their clothing, and um, they've, they've been granted the right to vote. But uh, the women in Fitzgerald's world don't seem particularly enfranchised to me, except possibly Jordan Baker, but certainly not Daisy. There's also a newfound sense of mobility, which is uh, partly driven, uh, excuse the pun, but partly driven by the manufacturing of cars, uh, cars play an important role in this story. For Gatsby, his cars, and he has many of them, uh, are a sign of his uh, social arrival. And one of the characters is killed in a hit-and-run accident with Gatsby's car, so the car then becomes an agent of death. And the production of cars and their increasing affordability for ordinary Americans marks a pretty important cultural shift. The car as you know, we all know, has played a central role in American culture, and cars tend to symbolize our ability to just pick up and move away from our roots, which, of course, is exactly what uh, Gatsby and Nick and even the Buchanans have done. So that kind of sense of moving away from one's family and all those things we talked about earlier, uh, that all becomes more possible with the introduction of this kind of transportation. It's also a very independent kind of transportation, not on a train, mixing with other people. Should, should we think of this novel as uh, as autobiographical? You know, did, did Fitzgerald know this kind of social circle? Did he know this kind of ambition, uh, kind of um, you know, longing for um, a, a particular woman, uh, the kind of friendships that he has and allies and so forth? Well, for from what I can tell, like a lot of authors, Fitzgerald often wrote out of his own experience. Maybe a little bit more than others, actually. I think The Great Gatsby is no exception, but he, and we know he lived on Long Island for a short time and that he had close contact with some of the kinds of, um, some of, the kinds of different classes that he's uh, depicting in the story. Uh, we also know that he... Uh, probably based Gatsby's house on 
one or two or more of the mansions that are located on Long Island. I, have you noticed whenever these mansions go up for sale, they always say that they were the true inspiration for Gatsby's mansion. <laughs> so we know that's going on. There's also a great deal of speculation that Daisy is a composite of um, a couple of women that Fitzgerald was involved with as a young man. One of them, of course, his wife, Zelda. But I think for our purposes, the biographical material is not ultimately determinative. The book, in other words, stands on its own and uh, merits our attention. I know some scholars like to look for his biography in there, but I, it's not. he didn't write it as an autobiography, so I think we should just stay with his story as much as possible. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about um, the love that Gatsby had for Daisy it seems pretty central to the story, especially as you've been recounting it today. Is that love, is Gatsby's longing for Daisy true love? Is it real? Is it even a kind of love at all, given the way he's kind of planned out his life and the way, as you say, there's sort of a difference between Daisy and how Gatsby thinks of Daisy. So there's some sort of tension here between what is real and perhaps what is more than real. I wouldn't want to say unreal, but I guess the heart of the matter here is, is, is his love for her real? We get several different accounts of the past relationship with Daisy. Remember, he's, he lies about his identity for the bulk of the story, so we're slowly but surely being introduced to um, his story as he sees it. By chapter 8, uh, just about the time Jay's enterprise is beginning to crumble, we learn that Jay... We learn more about how he understands his relationship with Daisy, and we learned that he had insinuated himself under cover of his army uniform into Daisy's milieu. I think that's kind of interesting. The army uniform permitted him to look like all the other suitors. He wasn't distinguished, which is right there is an interesting point of uh, discussion. And at first, Jay is simply opportunistic in his relations with Daisy, but to his great surprise, he falls in love with her. And Nick says that Jay feels married to Daisy. And she appears to fall in love with him. And this was not part of the plan, but it quickly becomes central to his vision of himself. Back in chapter 6, Nick says that Gadsby wanted to, to recover something, some idea of himself that had gone into loving Daisy. And that his Life had gotten confused since then, but if he could just get back to that place, he could find what he was looking for. That is something of a paraphrase of what Nick says, but I think that goes to the center of the story. This is, uh, this is that remarkable passage that happens right before the kiss. Remember that moment with the kiss? So yes, I would say Gatsby does fall in love with Daisy, and I think Daisy falls in love with him. But the love is underdeveloped for sure. They only have one month together, five years ago, and then they have, it's hard to tell, maybe a couple months in the summer of 1922. And I think Gatsby's love for her is genuine and proven when he decides to take the fall for her crime. And I think the failure of her love is in her decision not to stand by him and to allow him to take the fall for her crime, and to escape. She runs away and leaves the mess behind. 
So yes, I think he did love her. I'm curious about the title of the book, and as you've been talking today, um, you know we're getting a better picture of Gatsby. Why is it called the Great Gatsby? Is there is there anything really great about him? No, that's that's a good question. That's a that's a point of great controversy. I think that moment when he decides to take the fall for Daisy is a good reason to call him the Great Gatsby. He knows that she's enslaved in a way to Tom's cruelty, and I think he genuinely attempts to save her, even though she apparently doesn't want to be saved. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's why Fitzgerald agreed to that title. I know that there were other titles in play at the time that he was deciding on the title, but I think it works well for that reason. But I also think there's this kind of circus-like feeling about Gadsby's greatest show on earth. All these people descend on his lavish mansion to be entertained and wowed by these riotous parties that he gives. And he um, so great as in something great to behold. He almost looks like a ringmaster yeah. in those scenes. He doesn't participate in the parties and he doesn't drink. He doesn't dance. He doesn't even mix very much socially. But yeah, he kind of stands like a ringmaster might on the edge of his three-ring circus as it unfolds around him. But these parties were never sponsored, of course, for any other reason but to bring Daisy to him so that he could prove his economic value to her. So I suppose also it could be that great is meant to be ironic, although that seems less persuasive to me, especially once we've read that last chapter and we've seen and heard of this earnest young boy trying to make something special and beautiful of his life. To call it ironic seems almost too cynical to me. But uh, back in chapter 6, Nick says that uh, Jay's imagination just had never really accepted who his parents were. His parents didn't fit who he thought he should be. And I think he feels this great destiny in himself. And it can't be satisfied in the normal way of things. I think he feels like he's been born into the wrong family. And uh, the simple proof of that probably would be this monumental desire that he has for greatness. To be great is going to require him to leave that paltry scene behind. And as I said, I, I do think he achieves a kind of greatness that can't be met by Daisy or anybody else in the novel, including Nick, for the simple reason that none of them share in that monumental passion that Gadsby so energetically cultivates all the way to the bitter end. The, the novel, uh, The Great Gadsby, of course, is about Jay Gadsby, but it's also about Nick Carraway. And internal to the story, he's the closest to what Jay experiences He's the closest witness to what Jay experiences, especially uh, in the collapse of the dream that Jay has. Now, you mentioned earlier that he's he's in the he plays the he's a stockbroker, right? And at the same time, isn't he also a writer? Isn't he? He's not a writer at the start of the story, but uh, you might say he was a writer at the end of it. He comes to New York to make his fortune in stocks and bonds, and. Um, maybe to escape an entanglement with a woman that he doesn't want to be entangled with, which is only kind of uh, touched on every now and then. 
And that's what he's doing. He's living, he's renting a house next to Gatsby's great mansion on West Egg when Gatsby befriends him. And Gatsby befriends him largely because Nick happens to be his neighbor, and also he discovers that Nick is Daisy's cousin. So he... Uh, window of opportunity. Yeah, window of opportunity. Yeah. Very <laughs> great serendipity there. He came home, Nick came home from World War I, and we know from his own musings that he found the Midwest shabby and mundane. So he sets out for New York. But I think it's interesting that you think of him as a writer. He does seem poetic, and he's telling this, he's, he's narrating this portrait of Gadsby's life, and he tells the story in a deeply sympathetic fashion. At the close of the story, we hear Nick confess to Henry Gatz that he and Jay were close friends. That's a touching witness about a man he only knew for three months and knew only in a kind of fragmentary way in bits and pieces as he puts it together. Something we learn only in the last part of the novel is that Nick is turning 30. And that comes as a bit of a surprise, at least to me. 30 is a watershed moment. And it's uh, it's the moment at which... uh, a man becomes a man and puts aside childish things, and Nick decides to leave the East behind to return to his father's home uh, back out west in Minnesota. The East, as we were talking about earlier, it seems to have lost its seductive powers for Nick. It, it looks corrupt. In fact, he uses the word distorted. He needs something more authentic. Towards the end of The Great Gatsby, he shares this fleeting memory he has of journeying home from prep school when he was just a boy and having experienced the vast plains of snow from the railway windows. And he calls that snow real snow, our snow. Something about returning to Minnesota suddenly appears attractive and more authentic to this world-weary Nick. And, uh, you know, it's a strange sort of story. I think this is why some of the films are not quite right. It's It's got a strange mix of um, spectacle that's riveting and also revolting. And I, th- I think that's true for Nick, too, especially the revolting aspect as he learns more about the East and, and he learns that the East never cared about Jay. So maybe that's why he becomes a writer. Maybe this story has so stirred in him these uh, insights that he decides to tell the story. So you don't think it's that that he um, the East loses its luster because of kind of the the fizzling out of, of Jay, but rather that he Nick looks at the East in relation to Jay. Yes, yeah. I I think he finds the ending. I think he finds the situation really revolting. That that nobody can be pressed to, to attend the funeral when there were so many, many uh, attendees at those parties. Even his business associates won't come. Because one might well be tempted to, to measure Jay by how well or, or poorly he does vis-a-vis the East, but Nick sees it, the measurement turned around in a sense. Yeah. yeah that's very interesting. In the, in the end, um, Nick has this really interesting line. He, he, I'm going to quote from the book. He must have looked up at an unfamiliar sky through frightening leaves and shivered as he found what a grotesque thing a rose is and how raw the sunlight was upon the scarcely created grass. 
just on one level, I just think that's a really beautiful bit of writing. But, <laughs> yeah. but what does Nick mean by that? What are we supposed to take away from that? That's from chapter 8, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Deep I, that is such a beautiful sentence. Um, he says this of Gatsby in retrospect, already knowing that Gatsby is dead. And he's imagining, this is an imaginative exercise, but he's imagining Gatsby waiting for Daisy to call. And then finally understanding that she is not going to call. And he says that if Gatsby has realized this, this would be how he would have felt. That is, that the sky is unfamiliar, the leaves are frightening, the rose is grotesque, the world that was so sunny and so ripe with possibility has withered into this grotesque vision. I think this is the final disenchantment of Gatsby's world. Daisy doesn't love him, at least not enough to make sacrifices for him. So let's just recall the details of Gatsby's life. He makes this fortune on the manufacturing and uh, illegal distribution of liquor, but he doesn't drink at his own parties. He owns this lavish mansion, but he lives in this very spare and simple apartment tucked inside that great estate. So the quest for Gatsby wasn't so much about money, as it was about creating this enchanted life. And the key element in this enchanted life is Daisy. Losing her is losing the quest. And we see some foreshadowing of this disenchantment back in chapter 5, when Gatsby seems to have finally acquired the purpose of his quest. And Nick, you'll recall, observes that the green light is now just a green light. But... He also, in that passage, notices a kind of bewilderment on Gatsby's face. And again, it's perhaps because the real Daisy can't live up to that colossal illusion that Gatsby had been cultivating all these years. And it's, but, but even so, he finally seemed to have acquired her in that passage. But now that he's lost her, uh, the quest can't go on. That's the end for Gatsby. It's, uh, it's hard to imagine him going forward. It's just as hard to imagine Gatsby going forward as it is to imagine Quixote going forward after that disenchantment scene in the um, cave of Montesinos. Well, this, this has been a very interesting, very intriguing interview. I, I, I really admire your reflections, especially having read the book twice and having had one initial response to it and then moved inside the book in greater detail and worked your way through it. I'm intrigued. I think our, our um, I think all of us have something very important to think about. And it, it sounds like there's a lot to this book. There's really a lot to The Great Gatsby. Yeah, it's not the cream puff. It's not a cream puff. <laughs> no. It's it's more than a cream puff. There are a lot of issues there, there's and characters. There's your takeaway insight, right? Twenty five thousand dollars insight. It's, it's not, not a cream, a cream puff. puff. There are a lot more. There's a lot more to discuss. Actually, uh, there are more characters. One of the characters I've been intrigued by is Jordan Baker, who um, she looks um, she looks unlike Daisy. For one thing, she's not married, and she is successful as a um, golf pro on her own. And uh, she and Nick have a bit of a dalliance. 
I would I would love to spend more time with her character and find out who she really is. But there are just there's a lot more there. It's not it's, there's a lot more texture, and there are hints at um, further development. So it, it's um, it's a book it's a book worth reading. Yeah, it, it's a world worth inhabiting. I don't know if I want to inhabit that world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a reader. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a world there. worth looking at. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Classics. I hope you enjoyed the interview and will keep the conversation going. We have more great episodes coming soon, so please join me again and bring your friends and family. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. For everyone at Kane Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics. Classics.